0: Welcome to Passion Church. For more information about Passion Church, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. So how many of you are glad that the season is almost over? Uh, Tis the season and it's almost over. And all the hustle and the bustle and the shopping malls and everyone busy and crowds and Now we've gone through all the exchanges and all that type of situation, and I always like to go out at at least once or twice uh, during the season uh, to the malls just to be in the crowd to watch people's expressions and to see how many people are really enjoying being there, and the percentage is really low. And especially is that true among men when I watch them walking with their family and walking and they're having to shop and they don't want to be there and they're holding packages and they don't know what to do. So everyone has a top ten list and I've found the best top ten list I've ever seen and it's the top ten things that husbands or men can do while their wives are shopping. And if you follow this list, it will make shopping fun, number ten. Number ten. While your wife is shopping, set all the alarm clocks in the housewares department to go off at five-minute intervals. Number nine, make a trail of tomato juice on the floor leading to the restrooms. That will make shopping fun. Number eight, walk up to an employee and tell him or her in an official tone, code three in housewares, and then watch what happens. Go to the service desk and ask them to put a bag of M&Ms on layaway. Number uh, six, when clerks ask if they can help you, begin to cry and ask, why can't you people just leave me alone? (laughs) Number five, look right into the security camera, use it as a mirror, and pick your nose. That'll make it fun. Number four, while handling guns in the hunting department, ask the clerk if he knows where the antidepressants are. Number three, hide in a clothing rack, and when people browse through, yell, pick me, pick me, pick me. (laughs) Number two, when an announcement comes over the loudspeaker, assume the fetal position and scream, no, no, it's those voices again. (laughs) And the number one thing you can do while your wife shops that will make it fun is go into a fitting room, shut the door, and wait a while. Then yell very loudly, there is no toilet paper in here. That will make it fun. (laughs) So, I, I just thought you probably needed that during this season. Approximately 30 plus years ago, I heard a message on a Sunday morning. I can take you to the church from an individual that I loved and admired and respected very much. He simply called it the Marks of Calvary. That message transformed my thinking in my life. And then I watched that man as he went through tumultuous times in the church and came under great turmoil and persecution and personal attack, and I watched him live that message out in his life. His name was A.D. Pete, Pete Beecham. Uh, he's in heaven, but he means a bunch to me. And I asked him for permission to use the basic outline of that message, and he so graciously granted it. But it wasn't so much just what he preached, but it was the watching of him living it out in his life. And I know in the past 30 years, it's gone through many, many revisions, and uh, the points are not the same that he would have preached. But as we started this new year and to start this new year, I felt very deeply that I wanted to share this thought with you. I want you to turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 20, and beginning in verse 19, and we read from the New International Version, John chapter 20 and verse 19, If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In the book of Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, the apostle Paul says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to, unto his death. Another translation says, As a result, I can really know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I can learn what it means to suffer with him sharing in his death. And another says, I gave up all the inferior stuff so I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering and go all the way with him to death itself. I want to use these verses of scripture and talk to you this morning about the marks of Calvary, the marks of Calvary. Well, the statistics are in and they're not pretty. They don't paint a very flattering portrait at all, especially as it regards the culture that we're part of. In fact, the statistics read something like this. Ninety-one percent of Americans lie on a regular basis. Sixty-four percent lie if they feel no one will be hurt by it. Only 31 percent believe honesty is the best policy. Fifty-eight percent say things that they don't mean. Thirty-eight percent socialize with people they don't like. Forty-two percent don't stand up for what they believe in. And sixty-eight percent don't have a single hero. 93% of Americans determine their own code for right and wrong, and they say no church, no book, no pope can tell me what to do. 52% say they believe the Bible has the right to tell them what's right or wrong, but only 37% accept it. Only 13% believe in all the Ten Commandments. They've become the Ten Suggestions, apparently. Those who work spend 20% of their time goofing off which means that out of a normal 40-hour work week, seven to eight hours are wasted by every employee. Only one in three have been to religious service in the last year. 84% break the rules of their church. 55% hide parts of their life from the closest people that they love. 74% would steal from those who would not miss it. In the age group of 18 to 24 year olds, 61% lost their virginity by age of 16 and 14% lost it by age of 13. 31% of married men and women have had at least one affair. 30% aren't sure they still love their spouse. 82% of the people believe in an afterlife that includes heaven and hell. 46% expect to go to heaven. And in spite of all the statistics, only 4% expect to go to hell. That's the culture we live in. 62% 62% believe that cohabitation is okay. 42% condone adultery. 30% homosexuality. 45% abortion on demand. 39% pornography. 36% profanity. And 61% say gambling is all right. So we live in what society is now referred to as a postmodern, post Christian generation, in which there is a proliferation of spirituality. In which there is a proliferation of religious truth, but there is not a central authority or truth that guides the lives of individuals. We live in a postmodern, post Christian pagan society. Because paganism is defined as a multiplicity of gods, a multiplicity of religions, but no central moral authority. We live in a generation without a moral compass who save the whales and abort children. We live in a generation that are willing to kill life, and yet you can go to jail for a year if you crush an eagle's egg. We are without a moral compass in this culture. That's the one you live in. And that's probably not surprising to you until you begin to look at the statistics for the church. And what you discover is that the statistics in the church, those who claim to be born again, are not that different from the society in which we are now a part of. Among church people, 63% do not believe that Jesus is really the son of the one true God. 51% do not believe that Jesus rose physically from the dead. 68% do not believe that the Holy Spirit is a real entity. 40% say they attend church on any given Sunday, but truly it's more like 26%. And from those people born in the church from 1976 now, only 4% have actually experienced the Lord as their personal Savior. In fact, in the church, the statistics are not that much different than those that inhabit this culture. In fact, when you talk about pornography, 41% of the culture, 32% of the church still participate. When you talk about uh, sexual promiscuity, 29% in culture, 23% in the church. When you talk about stealing, 7% in the culture, 6% in the church. When you're talking about lying, 45% of church young people say that lying is sometimes necessary. That's the culture and the church that we are now a part of. This is our culture. This is our church. Now Paul confirms that in Second Timothy chapter 3 when he begins to talk about what will happen in the latter days or the last times. And he boldly declares and describes that generation by saying perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of their own self, heady, high-minded, incontinent, fierce, proud, blasphemers, unthankful, unholy, disobedient to parents. You've heard all that before. But he ends that by saying they will ultimately come to a time when they have a form of godliness, but they will deny the power thereof. So he's not only describing the culture based and, 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 and captured by sin. But he's describing what happens in the church as well. And he reiterates that that is this generation. The culture that we we live in and that we deal with is post-Christian, post-modern. And yet that same attitude is now in the church. So that in the church we have a form of godliness. We have a shadow without substance. We have relic and remembrance without real reality. In other words, one author put it like this. They literally are willing to embrace a form or a shadow of the truth so that they can avoid uh, avoid embarrassment. But they will not embrace the power of the gospel that transforms them, that leads them to repentance, that leads them to redemption, that leads them to regeneration, that transforms their life. They're fine with the show and with the trappings, but they don't want the power that makes a difference. Paul said, that's the generation we're a part of. Well, not only did Paul confirm that, but Jesus himself confirmed that. When he begins to talk about the kingdom of God and the church, he says this. He said, if the salt has lost its savor, it is good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the feet of men. In other words, he said, don't lose your identity. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are the leaven that is to permeate society and change it and make a difference. But if you have lost your saltiness, if you have lost that light, if it is some way placed under a bushel, if you lose your saltiness and your power, you're good for nothing in society. In other words, he said the problem is is in this generation the church will lose its influence. It will lose its strength. It will lose its saltiness and its savor and its power. And that's the reason is that we have lost our involvement. We're no longer involved in society. We're salt, but we're in a shaker. We're a light, but we're under a bushel. We're 11, but we're sitting on the shelf. And because we have lost the identity of who we are, because we have lost our strength and our power, we become ineffective and we no longer influence society around us. That's the generation we're a part of. Well, what's the answer? What are we going to do? Because if you understand anything about the truth of the gospel, is that Christ did not just save you for yourself, but he saved you so that you would be salt, light, and leaven, so that you would penetrate the darkness of this society, and the untoward generation would come to the light. Those that do not know the truth would hear the truth and be born again and changed by the power of the gospel that's already transformed your life. And so, how are we going to reach this? generation. Well that's what I want to talk to you about because I believe it's only as this generation sees the marks of Calvary again that they're going to believe and that brings us to this portion of scripture that I shared with you. You, You're very familiar with this portion of scripture. Jesus has been crucified. He's been buried in that barred tomb. The third day he has been resurrected again. He has conquered death. He has conquered hell. He has conquered sin and Satan in the grave. And up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain. And he lives forever with the saints to reign. He arose. And because he arose, he's doing three things. He is confirming himself to be alive, the Bible says, by many infallible proofs. He is showing himself to his disciples. He appeared to Mary. He appeared to the ladies in the garden. He walked with them on the road to Emmaus. He was with them on the seashore of Galilee. Over 500 brethren at one time saw him alive. He is confirming the fact that he has conquered death. He has conquered hell. He is alive. But not only is he confirming himself to be alive, but he is also renewing communion. Everywhere he goes, he's renewing communion with his own disciples. You you know the story. As he walks with them on the road to Emmaus, they said, Did not our hearts burn within us as he walked with us by the way? On that seashore of Galilee, he has bread and fish upon the fire, and he is saying, Come and dine. Come back into communion and fellowship with me. But there's a third thing he's doing. He's not only confirming himself alive and renewing communion, but he is renewing his commission to them Go ye into all the world. You preach the gospel to every creature. You are my witnesses, and lo, I am with you always. And that's what's happening in John chapter 20. The Bible said that the disciples were gathered in that upper room, and the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. They've watched him being crucified. They've heard the reports that he's alive, but they're still in doubt. And because of their doubt, they're filled with fear. And they have locked the doors of that upper room as if they could get close to him by going back to that physical place that they shared so many intimate moments with him. The doors are locked for fear. They have locked themselves in from culture. And they have locked culture out because culture has rejected him Culture has denied him. Culture has crucified him. Culture is persecuting them. And so they have locked culture out and they've locked themselves in. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes. Resurrected, triumphant, victorious, glorified. And he just comes behind those closed doors. And with him, his presence always brings a message of what? Peace. The first thing he says to them is, peace be unto you. It was the right message. Their hearts are filled with doubt. Their hearts are filled with turmoil. They they feel like they're going to be persecuted. They may be crucified. They're filled with terror. What they needed was peace. It was the right message. And it was a powerful message. Well, don't you remember when he preached it before? He just looked at the wind and the wave and the storm and said, peace. And immediately there was a great calm. But you know, it didn't do anything for them. In fact, even though his presence is there, and though he preaches and proclaims the right and the powerful message, nothing happens. They're still locked in and they're still terrified of culture. And so you know what he did? He showed unto them his hands and his side. He bled on them. He showed them the wounds, the marks of Calvary, the marks of his suffering. You know what he's saying to them? Guys, it's paid in full. You're pardoned. You're forgiven all of your doubt, all of your fear, all of your denial, all of your forsaking me. Everything is in the past. It is under the blood. He showed them the marks of his suffering on Calvary. And the Bible said, when they saw the marks, then were the disciples filled with gladness and joy. It led them to praise and adoration. But he didn't stop there. He gave them a new purpose. He said to them, now as my Father has sent me, I'm sending you. I want you to get out of this upper room from behind these closed doors and I want you to go into culture, a rejecting culture, a denying culture, a culture like ours, and make a difference. And he knew they couldn't do it by themselves. And so the Bible said now he he didn't just bleed on them, he breathed on them. He said, receive Holy Ghost. They've got new spiritual life. They have new spiritual power. They have new spiritual authority. They're filled with praise and adoration. There's only one problem with that story. One of them wasn't there. Thomas, Didymus, called the twin, he was not there when Jesus came. So what did the other disciples do? Just exactly what you would have done. They found him. And they shared the good news. Thomas, we have seen the Lord. You know what Thomas said? I don't believe it. Not me. I don't believe a word of it. And I'm not going to believe it until I can see for myself the marks of his suffering. When I can see the marks of the nails, when I can see the marks of Calvary, when I can take my finger and put it into the nail hole in his wrist, when I can take my hand and thrust it into his side, then I will believe, and only then. Now, I don't know why Thomas wasn't there the first time. Everyone deals with sorrow and tragedy in a different way. Maybe he's one of these introverted people that in the midst of trouble and turmoil, he'd rather be alone than with a crowd. Lots of people are like that. But he wasn't there. Now he says, unless I see, I won't believe. And so a week passes. And again, the disciples are in that upper room. The door's being locked for fear of the Jews. And Thomas is there. And Jesus comes, resurrected, triumphant, victorious, glorified, all power, all dominion given unto him. He stands behind that closed door, says, peace be unto you. And then he says, Thomas, come here. I want you to take your finger and touch the print of the nail in my hand. I want you to take your hand and thrust it into my side and do not be without faith, but start believing. Do you know the Bible never did say Thomas did that? It just said that when he saw those marks in Christ's body, he said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Thomas, because in seeing you have believed. More blessed are they who never see, and yet they still believe. Now to me, Thomas is just like this unbelieving culture that we live in. And you know what they're saying to us? The same thing Thomas said. When I see the marks of Calvary in his body, when I see the marks of the cross, when I see the marks of his suffering in his body, then I will believe and not until. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about physical marks. I'm not talking about going back to the cross and going through the crucifixion all over again. He hath appeared once in the end of time to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. When he comes again, it's not with the cross, but it's with the crown of victory. I'm not talking about going back to the sufferings, the physical agony and the nail hole. What this world is saying is what Thomas said. When I see the marks of Calvary in his body, he is the head of the church and we are his body. We are members in particular, but we are members one of another. He is the head. We are his body. And this culture that is unbelieving and untoward God is saying to us, when we see the marks of Calvary in you, then we will believe. Not until. It's like the little girl on a rainy day. Her mother was trying to keep her busy. She couldn't go outside and play. And so her mother had gotten a a large piece of white paper and a box of Crayolas. And she's going to let her draw anything, color, anything that she wants on that paper. And it will keep her entertained during the rainstorm. And every once in a while, the mom goes by and looks over her shoulder. And as far as the mom's concerned, it's just marks and different shades and hues. It really doesn't make much sense. And so finally, in curiosity, the mother stops and says, Honey, what are you painting a picture of? And the little girl said, I am painting a picture of God. And it takes her mother back and she says, Honey, You can't paint a picture of God. God is a spirit, and no one knows what God looks like. And the little girl is undaunted, and she looks up at her mother and says, But oh, mom, don't worry. When I'm through with my picture, then they will know what he looks like. You know what the Bible says? We are his living epistles that the truth is not written on tablets of stone. It is engraved in your heart. You are living epistles written, read, and known of all men. And what this generation is saying is when we see the marks of Calvary in you, we will believe and not until. And so what are they? What are these marks of Calvary? Well, that's exactly what Paul defines in Philippians. He says, first of all, I've come to know Jesus Christ. It wasn't because of my ancestry. It wasn't by my pedigree. It wasn't out of prestige. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrew, born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, a Pharisee of the Pharisee. But I've given all that up because I've come to the knowledge of the excellency of Jesus Christ. And then he says, this is what I desire in my life, the marks of Calvary. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. And I submit to you that when the world sees those four marks in us, they will believe again. You know what they are? That I may know him. Oh, come on, Bob. We all know him. No, our problem is we all know about him. See, we live in a generation that knows about him. We live in a generation of head knowledge. In fact, if I passed out the pencil and the paper, you could pass the test. You can tell me about his birth. You can talk about shepherds and an angelic choir and wise men from the east and a birth and a manger. You can talk about the conception of the Holy Spirit being circumcised the eighth day in the temple. You can talk about when he was 12 years old and knew he must be about his father's business. You can tell me about the Sermon on the Mount, the miracles he performed, the death that he died, the resurrection, the you know all about him. But you flunk life. Because it's not knowledge that this world is looking for it's heart knowledge it's someone that knows him in an intimate personal relationship Paul says I want to know him that Greek word for know goes back to the Old Testament to a Hebrew word that is yada y-d-a probably didn't pronounce it right but that's as close as I can get and you know where that word was first used no and Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and brought forth a son. So it is a word that by the nature of it implies intimacy, total fellowship, and communion. And what Paul says is, I want to know him. I want to live in an intimate, personal relationship with him. In fact, Paul says it like this, I know in whom I have believed. Oh, did you get that? It's not just that I believed in him. It's not just that I know all about him. It's not just that I can pass the test and know all the facts of his life. I want to know him. I want to have a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to know him. And you know what the world's waiting to see? Somebody that knows him. Somebody that's living in an intimate relationship with him. I got news for you. God doesn't have grandchildren. I'm glad we do. I love mine. But God doesn't have grandchildren. We are all firstborn in the kingdom. Which means you're not a Christian because mom and dad was. You're not a Christian because of the influence of someone in your family. You're not born again because you happen to be born in America. Being an American doesn't make you a Christian. As Steve says, and I don't know whether I got it first or he got it first, it doesn't matter. But sitting in this church doesn't any more make you a Christian than sitting in a garage makes you a car. Or sitting in a gym or playing basketball in a gym makes you Michael Jordan. You've got to have firstborn relationship with God. You've got to know Him intimately and that's what the Lord always wanted. He walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. On the cool evening breeze, he communed with them. They were intimate with him. He walked with Enoch, by the way. And the Bible says Enoch was not because God took him. Somebody said that went like this. Enoch and God are walking along together one afternoon. And God says it's closer to my house than it is to yours. Why don't you just go on home with me? Why? Because he wanted fellowship. Abraham is the friend of God. Moses speaks to him face to face. He chose 70 to go out two by two. He chose 12 to be with him. Three Peter, James, and John are with him at every intimate moment of his life, but there's only one that placed his head upon the breast of the chest of the Lord at the Last Supper, the beloved one. You see, the world's waiting for somebody who knows him, someone who is living in an intimate personal relationship with him. Kind of like the story I heard of a young man who had just graduated from seminary and he had won all the oratorical preaching awards awards, and he knew all the way to do the inflections of his voice and he had gone through speech and debate and he was powerful. And so they came to a big pastor's convention and knowing that, the moderator asked the young man to quote the 23rd Psalm. And brother, he was ready. He assumed the, the position with all the, the, the movements that he's supposed to do and the articulation of the words, and the inflection of his voice, and he starts, The Lord is my shepherd. And when he gets through with the psalm, they rise and give him a standing ovation. And there's an old man in the back, raises his hand. He says, uh, uh, w- Would you mind if I quoted the psalm? And they wanted to humor the old gentleman, so they called him forward. Now he knows nothing about oratory. He doesn't know anything about gestures and the inflection of his voice. So he just starts from his heart. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me. He goes through the whole psalm. And at the end, they don't give him a standing ovation. Everyone is sitting there with tears flowing down their cheek. And the young man stands and puts his arm around the old man and says, we've learned a valuable lesson here today. I know the psalm. The old man knows the shepherd. And do you know what this world is waiting to see? Somebody that knows him. Somebody that's intimate with Jesus. And not only that, but Paul says a second mark, is I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. What does that mean? Well, what is the power, the authority of the dominion of the resurrection? The power of the resurrection is the power over Satan. In that Jesus died, he died unto sin. Through death, he destroyed him that had the power of death. That is the devil. He took upon himself not the form of an angel, but the form of a man, so that through death, he could destroy the power of the devil. He conquered Satan. Amen. You're not with me yet. The power of the resurrection is the power over the devil. You know who Jesus is? He is the seed of woman and he bruised the head of the serpent. He is the seed of David. And and you remember the story of David and Goliath? He not only knocked the giant down with a stone, but how did he kill Goliath? Remember what he did? He went to his side and not having a sword of his own, David took the sword of the giant and cut his head off with it. Do you know what Jesus did on the cross and through the resurrection? He triumphed over principality and power. He spoiled principality and power. He stripped the devil of his authority. And you know how he did it? He did it through death. He said, devil, is this the worst thing you can do? I'll take the sword of death and I'll destroy you with it. The power of the resurrection is the power over Satan. The world's going to believe when they see somebody living with authority and power over the devil. You know what the Bible says? I give you power and authority to trap on serpents and scorpions and nothing by any means shall harm you. Amen. If God be for you, who can be against you? Greater is he that is within you than he that is within the world. Give no place to the devil. The devil rules by the usurping of authority. If you don't give it, he can't take it. So shun the appearance. Eschew evil. The world's waiting to see somebody living over the power of Satan. You know why they don't believe me? they see us conquered by the same things they're conquered by. Hold on, I'm going to close. I, yeah, I'm going to be short, wait. But I want to tell you this. Uh, Charles Schultz wrote cartoon Peanuts. That's my favorite cartoon because it's religious and it's Christian, if you know the symbolism. He's a lay preacher in the Church of God. Now, you're just going to have to believe me, I don't have time to go into all the interpretation. But do you remember what Snoopy does? He's always back into what? World war, war. One. And he's flying his doghouse. And he's fighting who? Red Baron. And what happens? He's always being shot down by the Red Baron. Do you know what Schultz is saying? The problem with us Christians is we are fighting a war that has already been won. And we're being shot down by an enemy who is already defeated. The devil has already been defeated. He is defeated, defanged, declawed, destroyed. And the Lord has given you power over Satan. Now, not in your own power, but in his. That's why the Bible says, if God be for us. Now, I never understood that until I heard a radio preacher. And he was an African-American preacher, and he was talking about, what does it mean if God be for us, who can be against us? And he said when he was about 10 years old, he was a real squanny little kid. And he said, after school, every time he'd come down the steps after school, there were four bullies waiting for him. And they had chase him all the way home, and if they caught him, they would beat the fire out of him. He said, every day I came home bloodied and battered and scraped and bruised, and I got so tired of that every day. But he said, one day, a new kid moved in my neighborhood. And he was 10 years old, but he was 6 foot and weighed 200 pounds. And he said, that boy became my friend. And he said, the next day I come down the steps and those four bullies are waiting for me and I start running for my life and all of a sudden I see my big friend coming. And he said, I ran and jumped behind my big friend and looked over his shoulder and when I got behind my big friend, a strange transformation overtook me. And I said, we be bad. Come on, we'll take you all on. (laughs) He said, what's the difference? He said, I had a big friend. Oh, dear friend, if God be for you, if God who spoke the universe into existence, if God who rolls back the waters of the Red Sea, if God who causes the walls of Jericho to fall down, if God who's been resurrected and conquered the dead be for you, who can be against you? The power of the resurrection is the power over sin. power of the resurrection is power over sin. In that he died, he died unto sin. In that he lives, he lives unto God. Sin hath no more dominion over him. I've been baptized with him into his death, but I've been resurrected in the newness of life that sin hath no more dominion over me. Amen. I'm not supposed to stop there, but you didn't say amen. You know why the world doesn't believe? Because they see us hung up on the same things they're doing they're not going to believe until they see the power of the resurrection operating in your life, which means you have authority and dominion over sin. That you no longer have to live in sin and you no longer have to be dominated by sin. Oh, hallelujah. You know what the power of the resurrection is? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. If that same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, He also by that same Spirit shall quicken and make alive your mortal body. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, faith. The gifts of the Spirit are operational in you. That's the same force that raised Jesus from the dead. And when people see you living in the power of the resurrection, they'll believe third thing is the fellowship of his suffering quickly you don't have any fellowship with him if he didn't suffer he's consecrated for us a new and a living way through the veil that is through the reigning of his flesh that we can draw nigh unto him with true hearts and full assurance of faith we can come boldly only because he suffered the only way you have fellowship with God is Jesus stripped himself of his divinity took upon the robe of flesh came into this world suffered and died and was resurrected that's the only way you can come into the presence of God amen But that's not exactly what it means. That's part of it. What Paul said is I want to be a partner with him in his suffering. When people see you suffering like he did, they'll believe. Now wait. How did he suffer? When he was reviled, he reviled not again. All the time they're nailing him to the cross. The Bible says he is crying out. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And and the imperative tense of the verb means he kept crying that out. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. That's the way he suffered. In other words, like a sheep dumb before the shearers and the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. He never returned evil for evil. He always returned good for evil. Do not be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. You know when the world's going to believe? When they see you a partner with him in his suffering. When they see you living, Matthew chapter 4, 5, and 6. When they see you turning the other cheek, going the second mile, praying for those that despitefully use you and persecute you, that you don't sue at the law, but you give up your cloak willingly. Wow, it's going to get real quiet now. That's why the world doesn't believe because they see us responding under persecution the way they respond. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the casting down of strongholds of the enemy. We don't, we don't participate and return what they return. We don't act like they act. We don't reciprocate like they reciprocate. We go the second mile. We walk in His steps. We're a partner with him in his suffering. Well, if you didn't like that, you're not going to like the last one. We all like knowing him and the power of his resurrection. He said, I want to be a partner with him in the suffering. And finally, he said, I want to be conformed to his death. Now, don't misunderstand that. He literally said, I want my living to be conformed to the principle of his dying. Paul's not so much talking about death as he's talking about living. And he says, in effect, I want to live like he died. And when people see me living like he died, they'll believe. Well, how did he die? For himself? Oh, no, for others. He came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom. He came not for himself, but he took upon himself the robe of flesh and moved into the mess of my neighborhood for me. He didn't live for himself. He lived for others. He didn't die for himself. He was without sin. He was spotless, godless. He died for us, for the sinner. And Paul says, when people see me living, conformed to the principle of his dying, When they see me living like he died for others, they'll believe. When they see me taking up his cross daily and denying myself, taking no thought of my own desire in order to serve them, to meet them where they're hurting. When they see me living, Matthew chapter 25, I visit those that are in the prison. I go to those that are sick. I feed those that are hungry. I call those that are... When they see me doing that, they'll say, that's Jesus it's only when they see us living like he died, not for ourselves, but for others. When this culture sees us no longer living by the same energy and effort and priorities that they live by, but by his principle of service, then they'll believe. You know what his principle was? Unconditional love. Our love's not like that. Our love is, I love you because, you know, I love you because you're beautiful. That's the first step, right? That's where we all start. Man, your heart starts beating heavy and your hands get sweaty and she's the prettiest thing I've ever seen in my life. I love you because you're pretty. I love you because you take care of me. I love you because you're a great cook. You know, there's only one problem with that kind of love. What if she's no longer pretty? Age is not fair. You know that. If you don't know that, hang on, you will know that. You know, I I don't understand getting old. You know, my nose hair, ear hair, and eyebrows can grow four inches overnight, and I can't grow one hair on the back of my head. I don't understand this anymore. But it ain't fair. And it's not fun. And what if she's not pretty anymore? What if she's sick and you have to take care of her? What if she burns the bread? See, our love's always conditional. I love you, but. I love you, if. But not His. His love is just, I love you. Period. Unconditional. Now that kind of love costs... It's only that kind of love that will cover sins. You remember the story of Noah and his sons and Noah's nakedness is exposed and one of them is exposing it, inquiring minds want to know. But two of the sons took a cover and wouldn't even face their father's nakedness and walked backwards and covered. That's the kind of love God has. Not to expose, but to cover and to cleanse. And you remember Jesus in the garden All the tensions and the emotions and finally Peter wakes from his sleep and he meant to cut the guy's head off and he missed and got him on the ear. And Jesus reaches down and reaches out to the man's ear. Do you know when you reach out like that, your chest is exposed and every one of those guys carried a knife. It would have been really easy for that servant to whip out that knife. He's hurt, he's cut by a disciple. And plunge it. But he didn't. You know the difference? It was the touch of unconditional love. Even in your hatred and your anger. I love you. It's that kind of love that covers. And cures. And it costs. Because you know where that kind of love leaves, leaves you? It leads you to the stinky places of life. Now brother Bob. I can't. I can't live like Jesus died for others and I can't love unconditionally or I'll get conned. Yep. Somebody will take advantage of me. Yep. We've been called to go out and to kiss frogs. And all of them do not turn into princes or princesses. Some of them just give warts. But you gotta keep kissing. You not only get conned and taken, you'll probably get crucified he did but that's what he's called you to the stinky area is not closed because you see the only three kinds of people we deal with in the New Testament are revealed in three stories one of them are Lazarus people they're dead and not only are they dead they're bound with the grave clothes of their own iniquity and by this time deterioration has taken place and they stink but Jesus loves them And he gives them life. But he calls on you to loose them. To take the grave clothes off of them. And for you to take the grave clothes off of them. You got to get to the stinky place. You got to live like he died. And then we deal with prodigals. You know prodigals. They've been to the father's house and had all the blessings. And they've gone to the far country. And they've spent the inheritance. And they don't have any shoes. And they've been in the hog pen. Anybody ever been in a hog pen barefooted? But the moment they come home, what did the father say? Put shoes on their feet. He's calling you to get down to foot level and wash away the stench and put shoes on their feet. And the only other kind of people we deal with are disciples, and we know about them from from the disciples. In the upper room, the most intimate moment, what were they doing? Fighting arguing about who's going to get the right hand, who's going to get the left, who who who's going to sit on the throne when the kingdom comes, who's the greatest. In the He's trying to tell He said, I have so much to tell you. And they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. So you know what Jesus did? Pushes back from the table, strips his robe, wraps himself with a towel, takes a basin of water and starts at one end of that little semicircular table and begins to wash their feet. And they're so engrossed in their debate themselves, they don't even recognize what he's doing until he comes to Peter. I don't know if it was his touch, a reflection in the basin of water, but all of a sudden Peter looks down and Jesus is washing his feet. And he rebels in horrendous fashion, pushes Jesus back and says, not so Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash you, you don't have a part with me. And Peter says, give me a bath, Lord, head, hands. Jesus said, no, those that are clean, only their feet. He gets up and he says, you guys don't even know what I've done. You call me master and Lord, and so I am. And if I am your master and your Lord and I wash your feet, shouldn't you wash one another's feet? I've left you an example. Blessed are you if you do it. And I close by telling you as a church, a denomination, we made an ordinance out of that. We believe in water baptism, the Lord's Supper, communion, and foot washing. Anybody here ever been to a foot washing? Hey, all right. Now, some of you are looking at me like, whoa. Okay. My wife always says, you guys never understand the logistics of anything because all you guys have got to do, go to a room, kick off your shoes and your socks and wash your feet. But what about all of us ladies with our pantyhoses? What are we going to do with all that, you know? Now, the way we do a foot washing is we separate the men and the women. We have basins of water, and we literally wash one another's feet. Now, in order to do this, to follow his example as a church, we always did this on New Year's Eve night. We would have what we call a watch night service, and we'd start about 6 or 7, and we'd pray and sing and preach, and then about 10, 30 or 11, we'd go to separate rooms, wash one another's feet, come back, pray or preach out the old year and praise in the new, and we'd leave patting ourselves on the back saying we did what Jesus said. Now, I'm not discounting that because if you've never been in one, you need to try it at least one time. It's one of the most blessed, humbling, spiritual things you'll ever do. But, but anyway, there was this foot washing. And the guys were in one place. And usually people get happy and they kick over the basins and there's water on the floor. And, and so everybody's gone back in the sanctuary except one old gentleman sitting in a chair and a young man that's cleaning up the mess. And the young man doesn't think anything about the old man sitting there. You get blessed and sometimes you're just with the Lord and you don't want to move. And, but he keeps noticing, he keeps sitting there and he looks over there and he realizes the man's not being blessed. He was able to take his shoe off. But because of arthritis, he couldn't get his shoe back on. So the young man just got up from where he was wiping up the water, got down in front of the old man took a towel, dried his foot, put a sock on, put a shoe on, laced it up, did the other one. Patted the old gentleman on the leg, he patted the young man on the shoulder, and the old gentleman just get up, went back in the sanctuary. But as the young man starts to rise, the Holy Spirit speaks to him and said, "Son, that's foot washing." See, it's not so much what we actually do. It's the principle that we live For others. Because I want to tell you, you don't know anything about one another. Setting this building looking at the back of one another's heads. The only way you know about people is when you get down to foot level. It's at foot level that you see the dust of their journey, it's at foot level that you see the weight that's on their instep, it's at foot level that you see the scratches and the scrapes and the bruises. Of their life And the Bible said the mark of Calvary is that you live like he died unconditionally loving people and coming to the stinky places of their life to serve them and the moment Thomas saw he said my Lord my God the centurion said of a truth that's the son of God And this world will believe when they see the marks of Calvary in you. When they see that you know him, living in the power of his resurrection, being a partner with him in his suffering, and living like he died for somebody else. I want you to stand with me right now. Hallelujah. Father, as we begin this new year, In the midst of an untoward generation, we want to bring light to darkness and salt to the rottenness of sin and leaven and permeate a society with your love. We want this world to believe. And they're waiting to see the marks of Calvary in us. I just pray especially right now you'd speak by your spirit. Say what I can't and draw your people into yourself. I ask it in Jesus' name for just a moment. I wonder how many would say during this coming year I really want to know Him. I, 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 I've known all about, that but I want to know Him. I want to live in an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus. I want Him to be alive in me. Would you slip up your hand? I want to know Him. How, how many would be so bold to say, during this new year, I want to live in the power of His resurrection. I want to live in the power of His Spirit. I want to live over sin. I want to live in power over Satan. I want you to slip your hand up real life. I want to live like that. How many of you would be bold enough to say, I'm willing to become a partner with him in his suffering, that I can suffer like he suffered? Amen. Then I want to ask you the final question. How many of you would be willing to say, I want the world to believe, so I want to live like he died. I want to spend my life for others reaching out to their hurt reaching out to where they're suffering I want to live by the principle of his dying this year so that the world will believe. If you really mean that I don't want you to slip up your hand real high. Just hold it there for a moment. Father you see our hands but most of all you see our heart. Lord they're just waiting to see your marks in us. And I pray this morning that you would start it here that you would start it now. I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Now, if you really mean that, I'm going to ask you to do something with me for just a moment before we go. Would you just step out? If you're physically able, would you just come right up here with me for just a moment? We're going to have a prayer together. I I won't embarrass you. I just want us to pray together. You raised your hands. If you don't know Him this morning, This would be a good time for you to really know Him intimately, personally. It'd be a good time for you to know Him in the power of the Holy Spirit. It'd be a wonderful time just to have His life flowing in you. I'm convinced that in spite of all the statistics I read to you of this culture and this church, They will believe when they see. But I want to tell you something from experience before we pray. If you can't serve and live like he died in here, in the safety and the confines of this upper room, this enclosure, if you can't live that way with one another, you'll never do it out there in an untoward world. It has to start right here. It means I have to get to a place that I'm totally committed to you, that I love you, period. I don't expect anything from you. I don't demand anything from you. I can just look at you and say, I'm willing to serve you and love you just like Jesus did. So I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer in a a strange way this morning. And if you're not comfortable with it, then I don't want you to do it because I'm not trying to embarrass you. But if in your heart of hearts the Holy Spirit's moving and you want to live like He dies and you're willing to commit yourself totally to that so that others will believe in just a moment when we pray I want you to do something I want you to go to somebody it doesn't matter who you go to and if you're physically able I just want you to kneel down that they'll remain standing if you come to them and I just want you to kneel down and put your hand on their foot and I want you to pray that Jesus would meet them at their load and Jesus would meet them where they're suffering and Jesus would heal their scrapes and their bruises and Jesus would lift the weight and comfort and strengthen them and by doing that you're saying I'm committed to serving you in love now if you're not comfortable if somebody comes to you and pray you stand up then you can turn and kneel and pray for them if you're not comfortable with that you can put your hand on their shoulder but if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you and you really want to live like He died, I want you to find somebody and just kneel and put your hand on there. The Lord's going to do some healing here this morning. He's going to wash away some hurts because we're going to start living like He died. Amen? Right now, go to somebody right now in the name of Jesus. Go to somebody right now. Reach out to somebody in His love. Reach out to someone in His love. Reach out to somebody. I'm going to meet you where you're hurting. I'm going to find where you're suffering. The Lord's going to wash away the hurts and wash away the bruises and wash away the dust of the journey. The Lord's going to strengthen and lift you from where you are to where He wants you to be. Hallelujah. Somebody reach out to somebody. Reach out to you where somebody's me, hurting. Reach out to somebody that, that I love there. you unconditionally. That, that I meet you, you where you are.
1: are the Christ, Lord, right there. Son of the living God. You